Hello there, and welcome to the Thinking Global podcast by E-International Relations. My name is Kieran O'Meara, and I'm going to be your host. Today, my co-host is going to be Ismail Aden. Ismail is a Kenya-based student from Somalia studying international relations at the University of Nairobi in Kenya. Living in Kenya for the past 10 years, his particular interests are in religious extremism and political violence alongside their consequences. Hi, Ismail. Thanks for joining me today, bud. Hi, I'm Ismail Aden. Welcome back to Thinking Global. Now today, Ismail and I are going to be in conversation with Dr. Ian Spears and Amalia fentu Weldameriam, and we're going to be talking about Ethiopia in the international system, and Ethiopia in international relations. So what we're going to do is we're going to crack straight on with it today. If you haven't already done so, don't forget to like, share, subscribe, and follow, and we're going to go straight on in. First, I'm very happy to introduce Dr. Ian Spears from the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. Dr. Spears is an Associate Professor of Political Science. His research interests focus on the obstacles to the resolution of violent conflict. His research draws from experiences of violent conflict primarily in Africa, the Middle East and Europe. Hi, Dr. Spears. Thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. Please just call me Ian. It would be great. We're also really lucky to be joined today by Alamayu Fentor Weldameriam, who is an Ethiopian constitutional law scholar, political theorist, conflict analyst, and a public intellectual. They're the author of the 2010 book Legal Pluralism in Contemporary Ethiopia. Hi, Alamayu. Thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast also today. It's great to have you with us. It's a pleasure. So the first question I'd like to direct towards Ian, if that's okay. Dr. Spears, given its history of being oppressed by different colonizers, how has coloniality affected Ethiopia in the international system? That's a terrific question. Ethiopia is really interesting in this regard. It's really interesting to think about the different ways, different kinds of relationships that be seen as colonial in one way or another. And I wouldn't dwell too much on the sort of conventional way that the world is divided up into sort of core and periphery and semi-periphery, although that's relevant too. The first thing to say is that Ethiopia is almost always listed as one of two African countries that was never colonized. And it's had an independence, and by that I mean non-colonial existence, um, arguably since biblical times. If anyone has read Paul Henze's history of Ethiopia, it's called Layers of Time. It's a wonderful book. Um, he says the first line is something to the effect of that Ethiopia has a strong claim to being one of the world's oldest countries, if not the oldest, that it extends back to, say, 4,000 years, I think is the date that he provides. So it's got a, an ancient history. And of course, part of this is, I think, myth. It's not always clear that this political authority has been sustained all the time, but that's one of the ways that it's seen in terms of coloniality. Another one is that Ethiopia is itself a colonizer, that Ethiopia is seen as an empire. As you know, Ethiopia consists of a number of different ethno-national groups, but its political center has been in the north amongst what are sometimes called Highlanders, Amhara, Tigrayan monarchs, that during previous centuries incorporated much of the south and the east into its empire. And in fact, when Italy was invading earlier in the last century, 1935, it actually 
claimed that it was seeking to defend these other peoples from oppression from the, from the north. It's a contested claim, but certainly some Ethiopian groups will see it as an empire. The third thing to say is that Ethiopia's borders are in some ways still defined by the borders of European colonies. So Ethiopia is surrounded by other states, other once colonized states, and it's a beneficiary of the Organization of African Unity and the African Union's provision that calls for respect for borders that were achieved at independence. And this is really quite a remarkable fact. Africa was very much out in front on this, the idea that the state's integrity should be sustained. And so that is free from invasion from other countries. It's not that it never happens, but Africa has had literally just a handful of interstate wars. Almost all of its conflicts have been internal. The final thing I'll just say in terms of its coloniality is with respect to Eritrea. So Eritrea, as you probably know, or as your listeners probably know, is an independent state. But until the early 1990s, of course, there's different ways you can present this history. It was federated into Ethiopia. But the reason why Eritrea exists as an independent state is because of Italian colonialism. It's actually quite, it, it can be remarkable to speak with some of Eritrea's leaders, as I've done, and one of them said to me, and this has been reproduced elsewhere, but there's this sense that we look at colonialism more favorably than other peoples in Africa and, say, Asia. For the oppression that Italy may have caused within uh, Eritrea, Italian colonialism is the reason for its existence. And in fact, the Italians provided, or at least built, a number of, of roads, other bits of infrastructure that characterize Eritrea. It's a different kind of relationship with colonialism, and there's probably other dimensions too, but those are sort of things that you can start with. And I do think that's a fantastic way to start as well, by looking at those dimensions. Okay, thank you. I believe our next question is for you, Alamayo. Despite a long and rich history of ethnic pluralism, Many argue the reason ethnic animosities are still raw is because the country was founded on a conquest spree rather than common ideals, creating a vacuum of cohesion and acceptance. How has this notion of ethnic pluralism played a role in Ethiopia's contemporary internal and external conflicts? Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, and. Uh... Uh, for asking this great question. And I see how this uh, follow-up question nicely fits into the first question asked. So my answer is yes, Ethiopia was an empire built by a spree of campaigns of conquest and a brief review of its modern history reveals that reality. Uh, I use the center periphery framework to analyze Ethiopian political development. And I have been doing this. Uh, and, um, I started work on my LLB thesis under the direction of Professor Andreas Shishati at Addis Ababa University School of in 2004. It is a conceptual framework developed by political sociologist Edward Shields at the University of Chicago and advanced by the Dutch American political scientist Aaron Lichpart. Competition between the center and periphery, centralization and centralization, centripetal and centrifugal forces has been the defining feature of Ethiopian political development, at least since the end of what we call the era of princes. That's the period covering from 1769 to 1855, and the rise of Imperator was uh, second, which 
ushers in an era of Ethiopian unification as pursued by its successive rulers, most prominently second and Haile Selassie and um, President Mengistu Haile Maria. So mapping that history of the evolution of the central periphery clavage helps us to identify what Professor Andreas calls the unfavorable conditions that prompted the emergence of ethnic federalism in Ethiopia. During the imperial era, the primary source of conflict was the endless rivalry between the monarchy in the center and the regional nobility. With the overthrow of the monarchy in 1974, the ethno-nationalist liberation movements came to replace the nobility as regional forces. Following the demise of the Derg in 1991, the peripheral ethno-nationalist liberation movements conquered the center. This cleavage in effect has historically translated itself into of state restructuring, centralist authoritarian on the one hand and federalist democratic on the other. This in part explains what has been going on since April 2018 with the war of words until it reached a tipping point in the constitutional crisis that culminated in the outbreak of the war in November 2020. Andreas Wimmer believes Ethiopia attained, he has a book uh, titled Waves of War, attained nationhood in 1974. He isn't the only one, as he was uh, taking his cue from Professor Donald Levine, uh, Levine's pioneering work titled Greater Ethiopia, The Evolution of a Multi-Ethnic Polity, published uh, on Revolution Day, 1974, the day the last emperor of Ethiopia was overthrown. I disagree with both of them. Professor Levine has come to revise his view later in an article in which I myself collaborated with him titled Reconfiguring Ethiopia's Nationhood. In this work, we emphasize the importance besides multinationality within Ethiopia's territorial boundaries of its diaspora's engagement with Ethiopian politics in a phenomenon that has come to be known as long distance nationalism. The Ethiopian Empire, like nearly all empires, took shape through continuous conquest and other forms of integration as a multi-ethnic polity. This originated in the early centuries, uh, the Christian era, as attested by the epigraphic inscriptions. The ethnic basis of the monarchy and ruling elite kept shifting from Aksum Saudwan, but the Aksumite polity was already referred to as Behera Ethiopia, the Ethiopian nation by the 6th century uh, Christian era. The way to move forward in understanding Ethiopia is, therefore, to look at the evolution of the center-periphery relations of the political court from empire and then state, beginning with Empire Todros and greatly advanced by Haile Selassie first, and uh, the Derg. Of course, I agree with both of them that Ethiopia was well on its way of becoming, of becoming a multi-ethnic polity, with an overarching national character, with a national language and other symbolic and artifactual paraphernalia, a recognition of its multi-ethnicity or multinationality was a towards establishing a democracy. Instead, the Dergu declared socialism as its guiding ideology. The TPLF, like its senior partner in Eritrea, the APLF, and the Oromo Liberation Front were ethno-nationalist re resistance movements to the denial of multiculturalism by the Derg and the feudal empire it came to supply. Tigray, consisting of the eponymous dominant linguistic group, as well as the Ago, the Afa, the Kunama and the Irob or Saho 
and the half assimilated Oromo of the Raya and Azobo is a multi-ethnic as Ethiopia is. Recognition of the fact of its multi-ethnicity has been a problem to this day. And, you know, I mean, I cannot go on and on. Uh, just uh, to complement that discussion, it would be important for people who want to take this further to read uh, the volume, that classic volume by uh, Donald Donham and Wendy James, The Southern Marches of Imperialism. Mm, okay, that's really fantastic answer. Yeah, no, that was fantastic, actually. Okay, Dr. Spears, Ian, this one's for you. Coming to the Tikrai War, uh, considering the enormous human and material cost, it has been termed by some as one of the deadliest wars in Ethiopian history and the wider region. Can you briefly explain the causes of this war and flesh out what you think made this war a conflict of such a magnitude? It's interesting that you're calling it the deadliest war, Ethiopia has unfortunately had a number of conflicts that have been extraordinarily violent and have caused enormous suffering. There's been huge numbers of casualties. I don't know, someone else may, I don't know if this has been the deadliest. There was a border war actually between Ethiopia and Eritrea between 1998 and 2000 that was just horrendously destructive. And prior to that, during the years of the Derg, the Derg lasted, which is a communist government that lasted until May 1991. The wars that were fought internally between Eritreans and the central government and between Tigrayans and the central government were, were also terribly violent. And in fact, they would often report back these huge numbers of casualties. It's often hard to verify these things, especially for me as an outsider in some of these conflicts were some time ago. And those earlier conflicts were especially destructive because the they often involved massive amounts of, during the Derg, Soviet-provided military hardware. Given the reports of the atrocities that have been committed recently, it really is disturbing. They really are disturbing numbers and just the viciousness of them. And it really you know, makes you wonder, what is it about civil war or this most recent rounds of war that have, been, that have demonstrated such profound animosity amongst Ethiopia's constituent groups? Uh, just the cruelty, gender-based violence, and so on have been unthinkable. That's sort of a broader introduction. And what actually caused this most recent round of conflict? Well, there are, as there always are, there are sort of more proximate causes, and I think there are more distant causes. Ostensibly, the flashpoint of the conflict was a decision on the part of the Tigrayan authorities to defy the federal government's insistence that they delay regional elections. And I think anyone outside of Ethiopia might say, seriously, was this a conflict that was worth so much destruction, uh, you know, just over a disagreement about uh, elections? So it was obviously deeper than that. That was certainly a flashpoint for this conflict. Maybe if I can speak in broader terms, in terms that will be more interesting to your listeners, I think part of the problem is that there are a number of different actors with related but conflicting and possibly even incompatible interests just within Ethiopia. As has already been explained, Ethiopia is a multi-ethnic state with a number of large and powerful groups, some of them being Amhara, Tigrans that you know about, Somalis, there's a large number of Somalis in the east, Amhara and Tigrans being in the north, Oromos, uh, as well as a whole bunch of other smaller groups. The challenge that is always confronting these groups, especially in Africa, where the state is often weak or relatively weak, where the authority of the federal government 
often has trouble extending, in some cases, in other places in Africa, even beyond the capital city. Now, I don't think that's quite true with Ethiopia. Ethiopia has got a long tradition of a state, but it's certainly, it's not Germany, to say the least. So the dilemma that confronts these groups is, do they trust their security uh, to a central government, which they may or may not be able to control? Or do they rely upon themselves for their own security? So do you cede security to a central government, which that's the state's job, that it will look after you? Or do you say, well, we can't rely on the state, so therefore we're going to take care of ourselves. Um, and I think this is the, the dilemma that is certainly confronted by Tigrans, but also more recently, if you're aware of these reports, it's coming up again with Amhara. So the Tigrans are, are interesting because from 1991 until just a few years ago, they ostensibly controlled the central government. And so they could control the state. Now, they did so in conjunction with a number of other, it was a coalition government, ostensibly. Uh, we can debate about how much authority the Tigrans have. They, In the end, they ended up in 2018, ended up losing control. So they couldn't have been omnipotent, but they actually then retreated more or less to the northern region of Tigray. And they essentially said, well, you know, if we're not going to control the central government, then we are, we're still going to be able to have authority over ourselves uh, here in Tigray province. What happens in 2018 is you have a new leader. His name is Abi Ahmed. He's a remarkable person. He's young. He's handsome. He's urbane. And he represents a, I would say, a positive face for Ethiopians and internationally. And the one of the first things he does is he makes peace with Eritrea. And I remember when that, when that news first came out, it was truly a remarkable achievement. So it seemed because here had been this longstanding conflict. And if you were only paying half attention, you'd say, how is it possible that somebody could make peace with their mortal enemy, with Eritrea? So we can also debate about the motivations for why peace was made. One of the things that is probably true is that it was a way for the central government to put pressure on Tigray province, because really what that previous conflict was about, and I'm, I'm a little reluctant to get too far into the weeds here because it does get complicated, but really the war, the previous war between 1998 and 2000 was between Tigrans, or at least the, the Tigran-led federal government and the Eritreans. So um, you could say that Abi Ahmed and his new government really had no dog in that fight, and he was willing to make peace with the Eritreans. And in fact, it was a way to put pressure on Tigray, maybe even to contain them. Tigray certainly feels pressure being put on it. And I think that this peace agreement and a peace agreement that might have been celebrated by the rest of the world is not seen in the same peaceful terms by uh, Tigray. Maybe I can say one other thing that's in some ways peripheral, but that might explain these kinds of conflicts. Prior to the overthrow of the Derg in May 1991, the TPLF and the EPLF had disagreements. And I won't get into the details of, of why they disagreed, but really these were two groups, both the EPLF and the TPLF were groups that were, if I can say, born out of conflict. They are not ones to make compromises except when they absolutely have to. I think what is true in African politics is that those, those regimes that survive, they are shrewd, they are smart, they are tough, and that is certainly true with the TPLF and with the EPLF. They are survivors. So 
they're not about to hand over their security to somebody else. They're not likely to concede their security to the central government. So maybe that is why you get a sense of why these groups are so reluctant to compromise and why they are reluctant to concede their security to some other force that they really are suspicious does not have their their interests at heart. And so I think what we're seeing here, I realize this is a long drawn out answer, but what we're seeing here is this profound insecurity, mutual suspicion within a state being played out. It is uh, protracted, I think, the lead up to this conflict. And I'm actually not sure that it's over. I suspect that there may be blows again in, in the future. What has the Tikrai war revealed about both regional and great power competition in the Horn of Africa? And do you think this might make Ethiopia the locality of geopolitical tensions? Brief automatic answer would be yes. The Tigray war has revealed complex regional and great power competition dynamics in the Horn of Africa that has turned Ethiopia into a theater for geopolitical tensions. Ethiopia issued its foreign affairs and national security policy and strategy in 2002. It was single-handedly written by the late Prime Minister Malazina, who put economic development at the front and center of national security and foreign affairs policy white paper. And Ethiopia tried to maintain good relations with regional and, and great powers as far as they can contribute to the country's economic development in a meaningful way. So it came to embrace countries on the left and the right of the old-fashioned ideological spectrum. However, its relations with the U.S. mainly, especially since September 11, 2001, was security cooperation in the war on terror. Ethiopia came to serve as the U.S.'s anchor state in the troubled Horn of Africa region. This would change since Donald Trump's presidency and the rise to power of Abiy Ahmed. What has become a distinct feature of Trump's and Abiy Ahmed's foreign policy is that it turned transactional, devoid of first principles. Abiy has received substantial aid, loans and gifts from the United Arab Emirates. He had made astounding personal friendship with uh, the Prince uh, uh, Mohammed bin uh, Zayed and uh, uh, the Saudi Prince. And as you know, the UAE has uh, maintained military bases in Eritrea and in Asab, in the port of Asab, and the military turned civilian airport in Somaliland. Before Abi waged the war against Tigray, he had an alliance of the axis of evils with Eritrea and Somalia, who have put their boots on Tigrayan soil. Abi fought the Tigray war with Turkish and United Arab Emirates drones. Initially, that were flown from the Asab port base, the UAE base in Asab. That became the game changer in the course of the war. In a recent article, Mike Oldemariam and Harry Verhoeven made it clear that the war on Tigray had Trump's blessing and was timed to be completed between election day. Abi has effectively turned Ethiopia into a client state uh, for the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. And is trying to pit China against uh, the US and the US against China in, in this competition, in this rivalry in Africa. Hmm, interesting. Really, really interesting, especially the discourse surrounding Ethiopia potentially as a client state. Okay, so this is a question I'd like to ask both of you. Some analysts argue pan-Ethiopianism is being overshadowed by ethno-nationalism, and this may ultimately lead to Ethiopia 
becoming Africa's Yugoslavia. Do you see this as the case? Ian, Dr. Spears, let's start with you. What do you think? Maybe I can pull back a little bit, because I think a lot of the things that you're asking about in this question, it's a great question. But I think a lot of the elements here certainly apply to Ethiopia, and maybe even more profoundly in Ethiopia, but are also true across Africa. Prospect of given African country being a future Yugoslavia, the prospect of Ethiopia being a future Yugoslavia, that's a challenge that virtually all African countries face. That is that they have a large territory with multiple ethnically defined groups that compete for power. When groups are competing, they're less inclined to be assimilating. There's multiple political traditions. They're more likely to split apart than come together. I think in theory, it should be possible to create um, a broad national identity that includes all groups. And maybe Ethiopia has the basis for this because they have such a long political tradition. But in practice, it's difficult to achieve. So when I think about other places, you know, Europe also has countries with multiple identities uh, within their borders. So I'm thinking about Spain or Belgium or Great Britain, and of course, certainly Yugoslavia. And I actually don't think that European states were any less diverse than uh, than African states are today. But what is needed is to have some sort of mechanism that generates this common sense of identity. And, you know, a lot of the time, there's this sociologist you may be familiar with, his name is Charles Tilley, uh, another more recent scholar, um, uh, Jeffrey Herbst has made the case, that, you know, when there's an outside threat, then people tend to forget their differences, and they cooperate, they collaborate, they look for ways to communicate with each other. Because African states are secure, as I said a few minutes ago, they almost never invade each other. There's almost never a threat. Everyone agrees that the borders should stay the way they are, and therefore they shouldn't be changed, and they certainly shouldn't be changed by force. There's this ongoing process of competing with each other. There's never any reason why they why they should collaborate. And so that really is a problem. And I don't think that there's a solution here. I should also say that we tend to, when we look at a map of Africa and we look at a map of Ethiopia, Ethiopia's a, got a very large population, but it's just sort of a medium-sized territory. But a lot of the time, those territories are, relative to, say, European countries, they're gigantic. So we, we think nothing of a war between European states. European history was filled with wars. But virtually all of Western Europe would fit inside one admittedly large African country. And so there's even a book by a guy named Gerard Prunier. It's called Africa's uh, World War. It's actually, it's actually about the, the war in Congo. So it shouldn't surprise anybody that Africa, like almost all other regions, has conflicts amongst its identity groups um, and that they are profoundly interconnected. So that is the challenge that is always facing African states, relatively weak central governments with trying to bring order or maintain order and cooperation amongst a diversity of identity groups. Nor is that more true than it is in Ethiopia. The thing that African states have going for it, I guess, is this idea of territorial integrity, which is found in constitution of the African Union and previous to that, the Organization of African Unity. Whether that's actually good for Africa in the long run, I'm not so sure. I'm, I'm not, I don't think we should be carving up African states. It's obviously not for me to decide. Um, but there is this question of, will African states ever be able to forge a common identity within themselves? I don't see much evidence that they will. 
as they are currently constructed. And that's a problem. And it's certainly something that, that African governments have to have to contend with and African people have to contend with. A final statement on this is the other thing that's interesting about identity, and I'm not so sure this is especially applicable to Ethiopia. Maybe it's more applicable to a place like Nigeria, That, yeah, but it's probably true for, for Ethiopia as well. But if you encounter Nigerians, um, I was in the Middle East recently, and I saw these Nigerians with these green and white flags, and they were you know, I think I even asked them where are they from. I knew where they, I knew I recognized the, the Nigerian flag, and they say proudly we're Nigerian. And so you might say, oh well, that's that's what it is to be Nigerian. Isn't this amazing? But within Nigeria, or perhaps within Ethiopia, you might get a different answer. You might say, well, I'm Tigrayan, or I'm uh, Igbo in the case of Nigeria or Hausa. How you define your identity can sometimes be uh, a function of of who's asking and where you are having to explain this. All this is to is to reinforce this idea that this is a challenge that that African governments face. It's also something I face. Uh, I'm a Canadian, and I've spent part of my life in Quebec, which is the French-speaking part of Canada, and part of my life in central Ontario. And I think that same kind of phenomena happens, is that people say I'm Canadian when, I'm out, when they're outside of the country, but especially for Quebecers, they might say, oh, I'm a, I'm a Quebec, Quebecois or Quebecoise uh, when they're inside the country. Okay, that's interesting. That's interesting, that final point you make about identity and how that relates to locality and why one is being asked identity and how one is being asked. Interesting. Okay, so Alamayu, you get the final word on this. What do you think? To give prominence to a likable figure like Getachi Urada, to lead the interim regional administration, formed on the basis of the Pretoria Pisa Accords, that Getachi was Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed speak for regional presidency. But his candidacy was met with resistance, stiff, and excoriating criticism from his own party central committee members. He was eventually elected with a bare majority of 18 votes out of 41, surpassing the second candidate by just one more vote. However, it seems that the popular demand for TPL left reform is lost on the highest echelons of the party and its militant supporters. What TPLF aspires is to a return to the status quo and calls for democratic reforms right in the country and within the party pre-April 2018. Although Getachu has made it to the top of the interim regional administration, his party's leadership and hierarchy have remained unchanged. It would be wishful thinking for him to bring about meaningful reforms in Tigray without taking over the top party leadership. To assume that the Pretoria Accords alone would usher peace in Ethiopia is idiotic. Politics are needed in Tigray and the rest of Ethiopia to bring about lasting peace. The Pretoria Peace Accords could lead to constitutional reform and durable settlement if seized properly and succeeds or potential dismemberment like Yugoslavia if it falters and slides back to the brink of war. The key to achieving this is closure and reform. Brilliant final words on that question, I think. So those that listen to the podcast know that I ask every single guest that comes on one question. And so I'd like to ask that to you guys as well. <laughs> what is it to think globally for you? Let's do it in reverse from the last one. Let's start with Alamaya. Alamaya, what is it to think globally for you? Uh, to think globally for me is to think like a human being. To think that we all share the same moral universe is empowering and at the same time... Uh, uh, puts uh, a great responsibility uh, on our shoulders as global citizens. That's a great answer. 
and Dr. Spears? Maybe you've uh, given us the hardest question uh, right here at the end. To think globally, for me, is is not just to think about the most powerful states, but to think about uh, all of the states, um, all of countries, all peoples, uh, and their how they experience the world. I mean, it's a it's a good question because I most of my work tends to focus in places like Africa um, and the Middle East, and uh, for me, that is those are where most of the people of this world are, even if they don't have all the power that they might like to to fix things to change things. But it's certainly for me, it's some it's where the most interesting politics are. So to think globally is to think not just about uh, well-to-do countries, powerful countries, but also to think about places like Africa, like Ethiopia, uh, that also have really interesting politics and dynamics, and sometimes tragic politics and dynamics. Okay, two brilliantly distinct answers to the same question there. Okay, guys, that's all we have time for today, but thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast. It's been absolutely great. So, Dr. Spears, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you so much to Alamayo Fentor Welder Merriam. Thank you so much for being here. It's been fantastic. Thank you for coming on, Alamayo. It was a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Wow. What an episode. What an episode. So what do you think, Ismail? Uh, this is really informative session, and considering the fact that when the Tigray war broke out in November 2020, Ethiopia suddenly became a topic of discussion for scholars and IR students. And I think this deep dive episode answers most important questions one might be asking about Ethiopia. Absolutely, man. I couldn't agree more. Now, if you haven't remembered to do so, don't forget to click on that little like, share, subscribe, or follow button that will be on the platform that you are listening to me right now. Just click on that little button. It's next to the description box. It's next to our lovely logo. (laughs) Speaking of the description box, there you'll also be able to find all the Twitter handles for all of our guests if they have Twitter, and alongside that, links to international relations. Speaking of which, we are the podcast team for e-international relations, the world's leading open access website for students and scholars of international relations. There you'll be able to find loads of articles, loads of features, loads of content pertaining to international relations, so you can click on the link in the description box if you haven't already done so. This episode would not have been possible without the e-international relations team. You guys are always amazing. I'd like to give a special thanks to Edward Curry, who really helped me edit this one, to Sharika Decker, Abigail Glynn, Nigel Huckle, Daniel McDade, and Eduardo Pieroni. Also, our music was by Material Music. I'd also like to give a massive thanks to my co-host today, Ismail Aden. Cheers, Ismail. And I suppose there's only one thing left to say. I've been Kieran O'Meara. I'm Ismail Aden. And we've been Thinking Thinking Global. Global. Cheers, everyone. See you next week.